Hi, everyone. I want to start by saying thank you to new patrons of The Art of Crime, Claire Marie Soria, Stephen E. Flask, and Brandon Sheck Snyder. Your contributions make a massive difference, so thank you, thank you, thank you. As I mentioned a few weeks back, Season 3 of The Art of Crime kicks off in early January, and I hope you're as excited as I am about it. But January's still a while away, and I didn't want to leave you without any content for the rest of 2023. So, I've come up with what I call the Rabbit Hole series. As you might remember from this season's Ask Me Anything episode, one listener asked if I found myself going down rabbit holes as I researched the art of crime. Shout out to Nikki, by the way, you rock. Anyway, this question inspired me to create the Rabbit Hole series. It's pretty simple. This month, I'm going to release two bite-sized episodes, in each of which I tell a remarkable story I learned about while putting together an episode but had to cut from the final product. Today, I'm going to tell you about a bizarre historical footnote I discovered way back when I was researching season one of this podcast. For those who haven't listened, it's called The Unusual Suspects, Artists Accused of Being Jack the Ripper. When I read about this, I just could not believe it, and I can only hope it leaves you equally incredulous. On February 7, 1910, the seaside town of Weymouth, England was abuzz. Residents flocked to the local train station in the hopes of catching a glimpse of a distinguished foreign visitor, Prince Macalin of Abyssinia, a North African territory encompassing modern-day Ethiopia and Eritrea. The prince was accompanied by three other members of the Abyssinian royal family. Joining the royal entourage were two Britons, the first a representative from the foreign office and the second an interpreter. The foreign royals came to Weymouth to tour the HMS Dreadnought, the flagship of the British naval fleet overseen by Admiral Sir William May. The ship itself was under the command of Captain Herbert Richmond. The Dreadnought had made its maiden voyage in 1906, emerging as the strongest, fastest, and most technologically advanced ship in Britain. Because of its sophistication, the Dreadnought embodied the might and glory of the British Navy, and by extension, the British Empire. Captain Richmond received the foreign dignitaries on board in the late afternoon and escorted them around the ship before sending them back ashore. Though it initially appeared to be an unqualified success, this royal visit would soon cause a minor scandal when it was revealed that Admiral May and Captain Richmond had been duped. None of the foreign dignitaries who toured this vessel hailed from Abyssinia. Every last one of them was British and in disguise. The ruler of Abyssinia wasn't even named Prince Macalin. The incident soon became known as the Dreadnought Hoax. The public response to this practical joke was light-hearted at first, but the Dreadnought affair quickly stirred the ire and concern of various officials, becoming the subject of a parliamentary inquiry. Today, we'll discuss how the British Navy got so thoroughly punked and why the ruse caused such an uproar. And the story will end with an incredible twist. The masterminds of the Dreadnought hoax were Horace de Vere Cole and Adrian Stephen, who had befriended each other as Cambridge undergraduates. The two had pulled off similar pranks in the past, and Cole, in particular, was notorious for engineering such gags. Another participant in the Dreadnought caper later explained that Cole came up with this practical joke when speaking with a friend who served as an officer aboard another ship, the HMS Hawk. As happened from time to time, the crews of the Dreadnought and the Hawk were waging a sort of prank war with each other, which prompted Cole's friend to ask his trickster pal for a favor. Quote, You've a great hand at hoaxing people. Couldn't you do something to pull the leg of the Dreadnought? They want taking down a bit. Couldn't you manage to play off one of your jokes against them? Unquote. 
Cole straight away enlisted the help of Steven, and the dreadnought affair was set into motion. The two lead pranksters assembled a team of accomplices that included three men and one woman. These four individuals would don costumes and become the fictitious members of the Abyssinian royal family. Meanwhile, Cole and Stephen would impersonate the two officials from the British Foreign Office. In order to convince the Royal Navy to allow them onto the dreadnought, one member of the crew went to the post office to send a false telegram to the commander-in-chief of the home fleet, the group of naval vessels in charge of defending Britain. The message purported to be from the home office and read, Prince Macklin of Abyssinia and Sweet arrive 420 today. Stop. Weymouth. Stop. He wishes to see Dreadnought. Stop. Kindly arrange, meet them on arrival. Stop. Upon receiving this telegram, the Navy asked no questions whatsoever and busily prepared a formal reception for the visiting royals on last-minute notice. Then there was the most important detail to attend to, the costumes of the hoaxers. If you listened to season one of The Art of Crime, you can probably guess who they turned to for their outfits. The master of disguise himself, wig maker and costume designer Willie Clarkson. It was Clarkson's employees who furnished Cole, Stephen, and the four Abyssinian royals with their wardrobe. When Stephen published a book about the hoax decades later, in 1936, he seemed to recall that Clarkson himself was present at the final fitting. This hazy recollection finds some support in newspaper accounts immediately following the hoax. On February 15th, the Guernsey Evening Press ran a syndicated story based on an interview with an anonymous manager of Clarkson's costume shop, who sounds suspiciously like Clarkson himself. This article contains the most detailed description of the extensive labor involved in passing off this group of young British tricksters as African royalty. Cole was, quote, reckless in his expenditure, unquote, not to mention extremely demanding of Clarkson's staff. Quote, dissatisfied with imitation jewelry, Cole went out and purchased quite 500 pounds worth of precious stones from a shop close by. He demanded absolute accuracy in makeup, and we spent some days in procuring exactly what he wanted. The three young men and the young woman all had their hair cut short and were fitted with black, woolly mats which completely covered their skulls. They were provided with short, crisp, curly black beards. Their faces, arms, and hands were dyed to the proper hue, which is to say, black. They wore turbans and flowing robes, unquote. Seen from the perspective of the present moment, it's all pretty cringeworthy, no doubt about it. But there's a historical explanation as to why Cole and Company went to a theatrical costumier like Clarkson for their disguises. Blackface performance was common both on and off the professional London stage in the early 1900s. In the context of professional playmaking, for instance, white actors wore blackface whenever they portrayed the title character of Shakespeare's tragedy, Othello. Attired in their disguises, the hoaxers headed to Weymouth by train. Upon disembarking from their carriage, the pranksters were astonished to find a full contingent of military personnel awaiting them. Stephen described the pomp of this official welcome in his 1936 book, quote, In spite of the short notice we had given, everything was ready for our reception. Inside the station, a red carpet was laid down for us to walk on, and there was a barrier in position to keep sightseers at a proper distance. Then, as we came alongside and approached the ship's gangway, the band struck up its music, unquote. With Cole posing as the guy from the foreign office and Stephen as the official interpreter, the royal entourage boarded the dreadnought. 
As translator, Stephen had perhaps the hardest part to play since he had to feign fluency in what he calls Abyssinian, not a word of which he could speak. In preparation for his turn as the Abyssinian interpreter, Stephen had studied a few basic phrases in Swahili, which he considered close enough. When it came time for him to translate for the royals, however, he could only muster a few words of Swahili. Panicking that he would blow their cover, he quickly contrived a solution. As part of his so-called classical education, Stephen had been forced to memorize lengthy passages from Virgil and Homer in the original Latin and Greek, respectively. Whenever Stephen had to communicate with the Abyssinians, he recited lines from these two poets, taking care to mispronounce words so that his speech wouldn't sound recognizably Latin or Greek. As for the solo woman involved, she later declared, quote, I spoke as little as possible in case my voice, which I made as gruff as I could, should fail me. I found I could easily laugh like a man, but it was difficult to disguise my speaking voice, unquote. Newspapers eventually printed several inaccuracies about what was said among the Abyssinians and their interpreter. According to Stephen, at least one paper claimed that they had spoken, quote, fluent Abyssinian, unquote. Definitely not. Others claimed that the Abyssinian princes had gone about the dreadnought ooing and awing over everything they saw, from torpedoes to telegraphs, repeatedly uttering the phrase, bunga bunga. According to Stephen, this was also untrue. Still, it captured the public imagination, to the detriment of the dreadnought's officers. As Stephen notes in his book, quote, The words bunga bunga became public catchwords for a time, and were introduced as tags into music hall songs and so forth. Apparently, the admiral was unable to go on shore without having them shouted after him in the streets, unquote. As the hoaxers toured the ship, they faced near catastrophe on more than one occasion. At one point, Stephen noticed that one of the royal mustaches was starting to peel off. Then it threatened to rain and everyone freaked out about their face paint, which could smear. Nevertheless, the crew saw their practical joke through to the end. We'll hear about how the hoaxers almost wound up on the wrong side of the law after a quick break. I want to take a minute to tell you about a top-notch podcast that will almost certainly appeal to you if you've enjoyed Queen of Crime, Madame Tussauds, and the Chamber of Horrors. It's called Grey History, the French Revolution, and it's hosted by Will Clark, who effortlessly blends meticulous research, gripping storytelling, and laugh-out-loud one-liners. The underlying premise of Grey History is this. History isn't black and white, and yet is all too often presented as such. Rejecting neat and tidy interpretations of the past, Grey History embraces ambiguity and nuance, considering different takes on the historical record to gain a fuller understanding of it. The first season of Grey History is ongoing and takes a deep dive into the French Revolution. If the current season of The Art of Crime has whetted your appetite for more about this turbulent period, Grey History is the podcast for you. Will devotes entire episodes to topics I covered in a paragraph or less for the sake of time. For instance, he dedicates a fascinating 45 minutes to the composition and consequences of the apocalyptic Brunswick Manifesto. We'll also cover subjects that we haven't even touched on this show. One of my favorites is about science in the revolutionary period, in which Will explores the controversial efforts of comparative anatomist Georges Cuvier to prove that animals could go extinct. If you want to learn more about the rich history of the French Revolution, listen to Grey History wherever you get your podcasts. Word of the ruse leaked to the press, almost certainly through Cole. Much initial coverage was lighthearted in tone. 
On February 15th, the Daily Mirror proclaimed, quote, All England is smiling at the elaborate hoax perpetrated by the bogus Abyssinian princes on Admiral Sir William May and the officers of his flagship, the Dreadnought. Even the officers who were so cleverly deceived are also relishing the joke. With that keen sense of humor, which is one of the characteristics of the British naval service, they freely admit that the hoaxers scored heavily and, far from bearing them any ill will, they give them full credit for their successful and audacious trick, unquote. It was furthermore reported that Cole was receiving mountains of letters from young English ladies imploring him to participate in his next hoax. Before long, however, things started to look bad for Cole and company. Members of Parliament, some of them livid, held an inquiry into the prank, demanding testimony from Reginald McKenna, the First Lord of the Admiralty. Among the questions Parliament wanted to ask McKenna was whether he would seek the prosecution of the Jokers for forgery. After all, they had transmitted a telegram falsely purporting to come from the Foreign Office. On February 27th, Lloyd's Weekly News quotes McKenna as saying, quote, The question is being considered as to whether any breach of law has been committed and whether it can be brought home to the offenders, unquote. Likely anticipating impending legal blowback, an anonymous associate of Willie Clarkson sought to distance the wig maker and costume designer from the hoax in an interview. Quote, We have often had to provide disguises for practical jokes on a small scale, but I think this is about the limit. Of course, when we were approached, we had no idea what the jokers had in their minds. It was simply our business to do the best we could for them in the way of makeup, unquote. There are two related reasons why the initially jocular reaction to the dreadnought hoax gave way to outrage and concern. Both have to do with the cultural symbolism of the British Navy. On the one hand, Great Britain's identity as a nation and as an empire was firmly rooted in the idea of its supremacy over the waves. Negative responses to the Abyssinian imposture viewed it as an attack on the reputation of the navy and thus as an attack on crown and country. During the parliamentary inquiry, Colonel Emilius Lockwood, conservative MP for Epping, called the hoax, quote, a direct insult to his majesty's flag, unquote, a sentiment echoed by his colleagues with a round of hear hears. The February 15th edition of the Western Mail clutched its pearls at the damage that the prank had supposedly done to Britain's image on the international stage. Quote, We may make up our minds to be laughed at abroad, and the caricaturists of France and Germany, especially Germany, will have a wild time, unquote. This article's emphasis on Germany brings us to the second reason that the dreadnought hoax was upsetting to public authorities. To a surprising number of eyes, the pranking of the Navy constituted what we would now call a national security crisis, particularly with regard to Germany, at the time Britain's chief adversary in the struggle for naval dominance. Indeed, the building of the HMS Dreadnought was the outcome of an arms race with the German Navy, one that kicked off in the 1890s. The notion that a falsified telegram could get a group of badly disguised pranksters aboard the mightiest ship of His Majesty's Navy unsettled observers worried about the rise of German naval power. If you want to get a sense of how pervasive such fears were in the decades leading up to the Dreadnought Affair, look no further than the career of Arthur Conan Doyle. In 1893, Sherlock Holmes appeared in the short story The Adventure of the Naval Treaty. As its title suggests... The mystery concerns the theft of a secret naval treaty between Great Britain and Italy, the theft being carried out by an unnamed foreign country. Holmes tackles a similar case in The Adventure of the Bruce Partington Plans, 
published in 1908, just two years prior to the dreadnought hoax. This time, Holmes must solve an ingenious murder related to the theft of top-secret plans for a British submarine. Like the cutting-edge design of the dreadnought, the British foray into submarine building was prompted by concerns about German naval advances. On the eve of World War I, Conan Doyle still had submarines on his mind when he published the short story Danger in a July 1914 issue of The Strand magazine. Danger depicts a fictional scenario in which Great Britain is defeated in a war with a foreign power thanks to a submarine blockade, which starves the island nation into submission. As the works of Conan Doyle make clear, state-of-the-art naval technologies like the Dreadnought were viewed as the guarantors of national security. This goes a long way in explaining why the perpetrators of the hoax stirred the indignation of powerful people who wanted to see them imprisoned. Luckily for the pranksters, there were ultimately no legal repercussions. As Stephen relates, officers of the Navy contented themselves with ritualistically paddling the posteriors of several of the hoaxers. According to some sources, the dreadnought affair also inspired the Royal Navy to improve security procedures. It has sometimes been suggested that Cole, Stephen, and the rest of these mischief-makers targeted the Navy due to their pacifist politics. This claim is hard to substantiate given the testimony of the prank's perpetrators. Stephen, for instance, appears to have considered the charade as nothing more than harmless fun, a cheekily anti-authoritarian gesture. Writing in the context of an earlier prank he pulled with Cole, Stephen declares, quote, Anyone who took up an attitude of authority over anyone else was necessarily also someone who offered a leg for everyone else to pull, unquote. In some ways, the hoax anticipates a movie like Borat, in which comedian Sasha Baron Cohen masquerades as a man from Kazakhstan, exposing the ignorance and folly of people in power. But I've held off on revealing the detail that made my jaw hit the floor when I first read about that time a group of recent college graduates totally pwned the world's mightiest navy. The woman who donned a prosthetic beard to play the part of one of the Abyssinian princes was Adrian Stevens' sister, Virginia Steven. Later, Virginia Woolf. Like, THE Virginia Woolf. I have to say, I did not expect to find the high-modernist author of such deathly serious and intellectually rigorous fiction as Mrs. Dalloway and To the Lighthouse, two of the most challenging and indeed visionary novels I have ever read, at the center of a pretty dumb, if also kinda edgy prank at the expense of the British Royal Navy. I mean, I just didn't know she had it in her. Well, that about does it for the Dreadnought hoax, and I want to wrap up by going off script for a second. So, over the holidays, it would be just fantastic if everyone listening to this podcast right now could recommend it to someone else they know. Maybe that's a family member or a friend or a colleague. Maybe they really love true crime or history or the arts. doesn't matter who. Uh, the reason I ask is because, as you might imagine, I put a ton of work into creating the art of crime, and it is my most fervent wish to make a living by creating the podcast. Um, by independent podcasting standards, the art of crime has been a tremendous success thus far. And thank you again to everyone who has stuck with me. I know some of you have been listening almost since the beginning. Uh, and I'm excited to say that I'm nearing a threshold where... I can start to support myself just by making the show. 
it would be just fantastic, as I said, if you could recommend the show to someone else just to help spread the word. And on that note, I will wish you happy holidays. Uh, Thanks again for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another trip down a rabbit hole. And then after that, we will kick off season three. That's it for today. You've been listening to The Art of Crime, created, written, and narrated by yours truly, Gavin Whitehead. Liam Bellman Sharp edited sound and composed the score. Last but not least, a thousand thanks to research and production assistant, Kin Symphonies. If you liked what you heard, please tell the world, by which I mean everyone you know, plus the occasional stranger. Also, if you can, take a minute to rate and review the podcast. It goes a long way in helping other listeners find out about it. Finally, all throughout history, artists have relied on the support of patrons to make their work. The same holds true for podcasters doing shows about historical artists. So please consider making a donation at patreon.com slash artofcrimepodcast. Every bit counts and is massively appreciated. As a reminder, be sure to check out the Art of Crime website, artofcrimepodcast.com. It features all kinds of images relevant to the show, including maps, drawings, paintings, photographs, sheet music, and more. You can also follow us on Facebook at Art of Crime Podcast and Twitter at Art of Crime Pod. If you have questions, comments, or feedback, please don't hesitate to drop me a line at artofcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time. 